Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. This is the Royal Blue Podcast from the Liverpool Echo, giving you the inside track on all the big talking points from Goodison Park. Well, hello and welcome to the Alamayas Everton Podcast, Episode 4. It's a packed edition, so sit back and enjoy over an hour or so of Everton discussion. Coming up, we'll be hearing from the one and only Colin Harvey on his life at Everton as a player, a coach and a manager He talks about the Holy Trinity, how the unveiling of his statue was just a little bit too overwhelming for him and when he turned down the chance to join Howard Kendall at Barcelona. Don't miss it, it's a good one coming up a little bit later on in the programme. We'll hear also from Steve Johnson and the success of the Everton amputee team in the FA Cup final last weekend and we'll be in conversation with Manchester's Metro Mayor and die-hard Evertonian Andy Burnham. Andy discusses growing up as a blue the time he advised the group of fans who were against the move to Kirby. And he has a message for his Merseyside counterpart. So I'll tell you what I'm really excited about, and I almost can't contain my excitement about this. It's the thought of the Coppite Metro Mayor of the Liverpool City region cutting the ribbon with a forced smile on his face to open a ground that's a better ground for Everton Football Club than than theirs. Mm. How good will that be? Honestly, whatever happens in politics, I am waiting for that day. Ahead of all that, we'll have an exclusive interview also with Everton's CEO, Denise Barrett-Baxendale, on her first 12 months in the job, Bramley Moore, and a tribute to former captain Phil Jagielka. I think I'd echo the words of our chairman, who referred to him as one of our greatest ever servants, um, both as a player and, and as a human being. You know, Jags is, uh, will be a great loss to us and somebody who I think perfectly embodies the spirit and the values of Everton Football Club. Well, that's all to come, but first let's look back and ahead with the Liverpool Echoes, Sam Carroll and Paul Wheelock to what's been a busy week and what's likely to be a busier few weeks ahead. And uh, Sam, we'll start with you. And the first thing I guess we've got to talk about is Baines uh, signing a new contract for a year. Did you expect that to happen? I think initially probably not. Um, obviously, from from what we've seen of Leighton last season, probably didn't play as much as either wanted to, even though he is getting a little bit older. But I think the, the initial kind of murmurs were that, you know, a, a spell in the MLS or, or, or even a, another team in the Premier League could kind of offer him a little bit more first-team football. And to be honest, there's... You know, fellow Evertonians couldn't couldn't begrudge Bainesy that move if if either wanted to go. You know, always been a, a, a consummate professional. I don't think I can remember one time his his name has been in the newspapers for the wrong reason. But you know, he's he's a big Evertonian. He's, he's got a young family who are, who was settled here as well, and I think probably w- wouldn't have been keen to to disrupt that at, at this stage of his career. And I think hopefully Everton next season are, are competing on, uh, you know, trying to trying to get into Europe and competing. In, in the FA Cup and the League Cup as well. So there's, there's no reason why Leighton Baines shouldn't still get minutes at Everton next season. You know, it became a little bit clear over the, over the last few weeks that he probably was going to sign a new deal. And, and really, you know, I, I think we've still got now two of the, the best the best left-backs in, in, in the Premier League, certainly the, the, the best cover of left-back in, in the Premier League that not many uh, teams can, can boast. 
Paul, how, how important do you think it is that, that, that uh, Lucas Dean is going to be challenged by someone with the experience that Leighton Baines has got, somebody who's got the, um, you know, the history that Leighton Baines has got of the club and the, the quality as well? Well, I think it was reflected in Lucas' performances last season, wasn't it? Because whenever he actually got a chance to come back in, I'm thinking Huddersfield away or even Lincoln in the FA Cup, he, it was like he never got away at all, Leighton. And I think he's proven he's kept himself in good condition. We always... N- and have known for a number of years just how good a footballer is and yeah he, he isn't able to get up and down that left hand side like he used to do and like Luca can do now but his quality will never go he'll always be a quality footballer I don't think there's many better in the squad with the ball at his feet you know if he gets it on that left, left wing his delivery is going to be good or his pass is going to be right and I think Dean as well from Webfin he's, he's spoken publicly about Leighton I think he, he, res- he really respects him doesn't he he knows how good a player he is and with someone like that behind you you've got to stay on your toes haven't you really and I think in, in it's almost like a backhanded compliment to, to Baines how good Dean was in his first season as a club was probably because of that competition he's got behind him which maybe it wouldn't be in the case if you had young Anthony Robinson you know a bit of a rookie behind him so no I really echo what Sam said there absolutely delighted and, and also the fact that he, he's an Evertonian isn't he and you know what he was saying about brands, I found, was really interesting. You know, the kind of like in-depth discussions he'd been having, and it kind of made me wonder if maybe he's seeing something after his Everton career there, because that's what Everton's all about, isn't it? Once he's kind of like touched there, you you want people, you key Everton people, still to be involved with the club, and it kind of made me wonder. Okay, we might have him for another one or two years, but maybe after that, you could see uh, another role for him at the club. And he's an intelligent guy, isn't he, Sam? I think he's someone who, as you've just alluded to, Paul, you know that that can go on and can offer something. After his playing career, Evan definitely. I think he's a he's a different character as well. Now he he loves his photography here, off, his, music. Off, his, his music and his photography definitely off the field. And 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 as Paul said, quite interesting point really. You know, I don't think you could probably get a better character uh, to to work certainly. You know, with young lads at the academy and 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 even with the first team squad when when his career ends, but. He also strikes me as someone who wouldn't surprise me if he has a, a top ten hit after the end of his playing career as well. I mean, he, he looks like he looks like one of them. So you know, I'm sure whatever Leighton Baines puts his mind to after football will will be a success. But just to, to touch on what Paul says, well, I think one of the the easiest things for me about Dean is, and I don't know if you two have it as well, but when you watch him play just from little things the way he moves his body to the way he strikes the ball it's almost like watching Baines very similar yeah. when he first yeah. came I've thought that. F- from Wigan you know mm. a, a mm. lot of striking similarities and I think that's testament really to Marco Silva and Marcel Brands because you know this time last summer we were kind of saying how do you replace a player like Leighton Baines and we've basically just went and got the French version of him so <laughs> you know you can't say further than that can you I, I, you never know you might join Oasis we never know fit <laughs> <laughs> it instead of no I do remember when I when I came back to the club in 13 there was heavy heavy pressure um, with regards to Manchester United and Apostle move you know at the time I remember it was him and, and Fellaini and we and we put out a statement at the time saying that you know uh, the, the, the offers were derisory I think was the word we used and, and, and there was a real pressure on Leighton Baines at the time um, and I thought what I can say is from you know from internally the way he handled that was fantastic to see, certainly from my point of view, somebody who was looking at it from a PR point of view, and the way he handled that. And I think that's really helped him in the latter stage, in the last few years of his career at Everton, that, that he, he you know honoured the club and he, um, he dealt with that situation in a very good way. And I think that's important to say as well. But uh, one, one person who has gone out is uh, Nicola Vlasic. Um, are we surprised, Paul, that he's gone? 
No, not really. Even though <clears throat> he's obviously had a good season with Moscow and scored, scored some big goals, particularly the one against Real Madrid in the Champions League. But the fact that Silva had a look at him last summer and let him go then, and he hadn't been particularly bad in that season. I think he had a few flash, you know, a few moments of brilliance. But to me, the fact that he was sent out on loan as a young lad after a few months of, of, of being on the Silva suggested that his cards had already been marked, to be honest. And it's a shame in a way because there's no doubt he's got potential there. But when you look at the players Everton have available in those kind of positions, is he going to get in front of Sigerson anytime soon? A suggestion or uh, obviously got Bernard, got Richarlison, got Luckman, got Walcott. The, the word is that if the club are also looking for another wide player or one of those kind of players who can play across the front three. No, I'm not. And I'm quite pleased by the, the money aspect because at the end of the day, if you're getting Gomez for 23 million and then you're getting 14 million back for Vlasic, and I think this was that. Did, he, did we get a profit on, on Vlasic? Is I think he right? cost about 10, 10 million, didn't he? Yeah, yeah. I think he cost about 10. So, so it is a profit. Yeah, yeah. Every, it, it suggests more good business from the club in, in my books, anyway. So, I, sorry, I was going to say, Sam, and, and I don't know about you, but any time I saw him, and I watched him in a few games, certainly in Portugal, I think it was, last summer he, he played, and I just always felt that you wanted to see more from him. I think he'll he'll always be a bit of an anomaly, really, in, in terms of, you know, you probably do think that, but then I also remember in those kind of horrible last few games of the Cumin reign and, and a couple of times then when I seen him under Allardyce, you kind of thought, you know, you know what? This lad does have something about him and we've splashed all this money on your Balassies and your Classens and we've got this kid from Croatia and, he, and he, he's really talented. But at the same time, you talk about that. I remember on a freezing cold night uh, being sent to Brenton Park when I was on my work experience here, funnily enough, uh, to watch Everton under-23s against Liverpool under-23s and it was when Unsworth had just been made first-team manager uh, for a little while and Francis Jeffers took the team and Vlasic played the full game in that as far as I can remember. And absolutely stunk the gaff out. You could tell <laughs> he was lashing down. <laughs> he was in the it. middle of Birkenhead, and he absolutely did not want to be there. And and to me, maybe questions over his over his attitude a little bit. I remember, uh, I think it was in Phil Kirkbride's piece about Vlasic a few months ago, kind of saying where when when they held discussions in the summer about what he'd do next, Vlasic kind of had this feeling that he should be playing. He should be a key part of that midfield. And and, and Silver and Brands didn't see that. And again. You know, I, I don't think there's any Everton fans losing sleep over the fact we've made a profit on Nicola Vlasic. And, you know, we've also heard that there's a, a sell-on fee in, included in that five-year contract. So, you know, for me, it's a little bit of a win-win because if he does go to Russia now and score 20 goals next season and your Real Madrid's coming for him and, and, and splash 40 million on it, on him, then Everton are getting a cut of that as well. And, you know, you probably can't see that happening in the near future. But, you know, he, he had something about him and it, and it would have been interesting to see how he would have developed, but I think you know once you've once you've watched a player like Andre Gomez last season, if you think that's what the level is that Brands and Silver won at Everton at this moment, then it's just not going to happen, you know. But he's he's a 21 year old lad, and again, you know, good luck to him. I'd, I'd probably say that you know he a big a big part of the move was probably down to him thinking, you know, I will go to CSK. I'll be a big player. You know, spoke to people in Russia last season. He was made captain. You know, the fans really like him probably thinks about playing Champions League football regularly, winning titles over there. So, you know, good good luck to Nikola Vlasic and I just think it's the perfect deal. You know, Everton have got a good deal. Vlasic has done well for himself and, and hopefully he kicks on and, and we scored even more money off him in the future. And Paul, £8 million on top represents good business for Gomez, doesn't it? 
Oh, without question, I'm absolutely delighted that it looks like it's it's going to get over over the line. I know it kind of got announced last week that a a, de- a deal had been agreed. We yet to see uh, it, it it's be signed and sealed, but you know it it does look like he's coming to the club. And since given we've had like that kind of week long wait for it to happen and weeks and weeks and weeks before that, you know, a lot of people have been saying, oh well, does he bring enough goals? You know, should he create more assists? And there's no question he could he could do both of those. But I think. Every performance we've seen before the first derby, and then maybe after this, the second derby, seen what an absolute class act he is. And it's I mentioned the derby there. Probably Liverpool are a good example. You know, you look at their midfielders; they actually don't score many goals. You probably count on one hand how many Henderson, Wijnaldum, and Fabinho score, but no one's saying that they're not very good footballers. I think it's yeah. it's important that we have goals in front of them, and we've got two adventurous fullbacks. Or certainly, it looks like Sheamus is back to his best again at the end of the season. So I'm not too worried if Gomez only chips in with three or four and I think <clears throat> I think Dave Prentice said on one of the other podcasts that we did recently he said like you look back to the 80s and the great teams Reedy Paul Bracewell weren't goal scorers were they yeah. but you had two players wide in Stephen and Sheedy who could do it and, and hopefully we're going to have something similar but no absolutely made up Al that he's, uh, it looks like he's signing again and who's next Neres we keep hearing I mean from what I hear it's not that's not something that, that's being pursued And uh, but but if not Who's who's next? Let's say that we all accept that Zuma needs to come in. Um, whether that happens or not, we'll, we'll see. But but who next? Uh, just just quickly before this one, I just want to also point out Paul was at the front of the Andre Gomez hugathon queue. Yeah. <laughs> queued up overnight to to I hug see that. Andre yeah. Gomez. Yeah, yeah, yeah. just Nothing. so everyone. Uh, I think Zuma coming in. Uh, t- to be honest, I, I I personally don't think we'll we'll get Zuma. I just think there's too much involved in. Mm. Too many dominoes that need to fall in in, in certain places, and that you need this transfer ban to get overturned, probably, so they can sign a replacement. You depend on a new manager coming in and not liking them. A lot of things, you know, the right price, the right personal terms. As much as I'd love to sign Zuma, I probably imagine Brands and uh, Silver have got other options. A, a right back as well. And for me, it's a strange feeling that we still need another central midfielder because I think mm. Adrissa Garnagay, it's not 100% certain his future. You know, we haven't heard a lot about that PSG interest for a while, but still little murmurs from France that they could come back. Morgan Schneidlin, you know, I think his future will probably become a little bit more clear. You know, we had a little bit of a renaissance towards the back end of last season. Is he still what we need? I'm, I'm not so sure about him. And then obviously a, a striker who scores goals. You know, we, we've heard the... Brands is keen, you know. Brands isn't too sure about splashing tens of millions on a on an out and out striker. You know, we kind of want someone in that Richarlison mould who can play across the front three, which again makes sense to me with the form that uh, Richarlison Bernard were in towards the end of last season. I, I think Silva might give Theo Walcott another chance. Luckman's future's unclear, so you know, in in a way, you can make a case for needing a player in every position. In in some ways, you can make a, a case for not needing players in in most positions, bar centre back and right back. But certainly, I, I, I'd say get Zuman in, get another centre back in. We need a right back to challenge Coleman in the same vein that we brought Dean in last summer. A centre back and a, and a forward. So there's at least four players that were still needing to bring into the club and, and we haven't really been strongly linked with anyone you know as nice as it is to imagine you like some netters, as you said Al I just don't see you coming off this summer Well it's been um, a shortened version tonight because we've got so much um, to put into this uh, podcast so uh, thanks very much guys and I'm sure a busy week or two to come 
the Royal Blue Podcast from the Liverpool Echo. Well, as I say, a shortened uh, conversation with regards to uh, the current issues at the moment. And that's because we've got so much to get in. And we'll start with my interview with Everton's CEO, Denise Barrett-Baxendale, who's been in the job just on 12 months now. I sat down at Finch Farm in her office to discuss how that year's gone, what's been achieved and what lies ahead. I think it's incredible how quickly the time flies and the season comes to an end and uh, that time passes, but in such a short period of time. I'm delighted, really thrilled in terms of um, the direction we're going in, the clear sense of purpose, our strategy and vision that's underpinning our operation. Um, And I think we've achieved a lot in that season. There was a lot to do, and I think it's uh, only right and fair, to be honest. You know, the first thing that I had to do was to restructure the most senior element of the football club. So following a period of instability really and lots of change the priority for me really was to put that structure and stability in both on the business side of the club and the football Um, so I developed a 90-day plan which was very clearly um, communicated to the board and then executed uh, to make sure that we were set up for success for the 2018-19 season and delighted that we've achieved the objectives that were defined in that uh, 90-day plan we started at the top and looked at how we could remodel the board to have an executive board model, um, executive board model bringing um, new executive leadership into the into the senior team of the club, um, and really enriching and enhancing how we could deliver um, best benefit for the football club. So, um, also as part of that, I established a new leadership team, so a new executive leadership team which operates below the board in the football club, giving real clear accountability, guidance, and direction. Um, in terms of what their roles and responsibilities are and that's that's paying real dividends now and we're seeing that working really well for us. Um, Alongside that big priority was the stadium and to make sure that we have a stadium development director in post who's working on the stadium day to day and is delighted to welcome Colin Chong to Everton Football Club or welcome him back. Uh, So in terms of restructure it's all worked extremely well and we're making great progress on the football side priority there was to appoint a new director of football and first team manager, um, conduct a full review of the support required for both of those senior practitioners um, and make sure that uh, we were set and prepared for all of the signings that we had last year. So very, very busy period alongside development work at, at the stadium and here at Finch Farm. In terms of our people, we moved our people from Goodison Park to the Royal Ivy Building, which has been a really beneficial move for us both commercially and also in terms of operationally and, and how the esteem that we're giving to our, our people at Everton Football Club. So that was a real you know, difficult move in some respects for people leaving the stadium, but how we manage that very carefully to make sure that the Royal Liver building um, clearly represents our football club. Um, and you will see it when you've visited us, Alan, you'll see the uh, memorabilia and uh, how we've made sure we've brought some very key components from the stadium into our office space. Alongside that, we went for the Times Top 100 and we're delighted to move up 25 places in terms of staff engagement. So again, when we call ourselves a people's club, we must start with our own people and make sure they're dedicated and committed to the football club each and every day. So we were, we were delighted with that. Um, another priority, commercial it's something that we need to be better at we need to do more um, but we were delighted to welcome some new partners um, and announce some new deals with Fanatics and Umbro during um, the last season and then a significant amount of work on the new stadium 
you'll have taken part in, I'm sure, the stadium consultation. Um, we, you know, working with the local authority, working with funding partners, um, our architect and our fans and the, the greater city region really for them to understand the scale and depth of this regeneration programme, not just for building a new stadium, but also for delivering the impact it will economically and socially across the city region. Fan base all this season, obviously sold out on season tickets and lounges, which was fantastic. Um, but there's still a lot to do in the future, so a really buoyant and profitable season, one we're delighted with, but still a lot more to do. Um, as far as, the, go back to the, the library building, I mean, as, a, as somebody who sat for many years of my life in a very small, <laughs> you know, uh, pokey office um, in the top of the, the shop in, you know, at Goodison, um, it was never really fit for purpose, was it, as a business, uh, even though we all have fantastic memories of, of the offices and our time there. Um, how big a deal is going to the library buildings? And I know some fans will say, you know, it's not just about moving to a new office, but but from a business point of view, I guess that's really important. It's extremely important. As you say, obviously our growth in staff headcount um, has been significant over the last four to five years. We have to have the correct accommodation and esteem for the football club. You know, we're a Premier League football club and that has to be reflected in how we operate internally and externally for commercial um, partnerships too but in terms of you're right we we have people in the mega store in the fan center on the park end um, Gladys Street Bullins Road and when you're when you want to lead a team efficiently and effectively with clear communication accountability we need everybody under one roof so that they're all getting the same messaging they're all working towards the same vision and strategy and principles um, you know as custodians of the football club so it's been you know it was sentimentally a difficult move when we first started to talk about it but a year on the staff are delighted i think also you know we're located in the city center in anticipation of a move to our new stadium so it was important to me that we have business continuity that we were able to move our staff down and have them in situ in anticipation for the stadium development project you've been a year as ceo but that's not the start of you at this football club you've got a long history here um Tell us a little bit about what you did before that, you know, because obviously we know about the good work with regards to the uh, to the Everton community. Yeah, when I first arrived at the football club, I was asked by the um, chief executive at the time to join him to uh, work on a turnaround management project for Everton in the community. Um, it was in a position where it needed some support, some guidance, a strategic plan, um, some investment, and he'd approached me to ask me to come and support him with his endeavours. So I started in that role and then very quickly was promoted to Chief Operating Officer because there were a number of elements of the business that I think he'd identified at needing some turnaround intervention. So I took on that operation, which I absolutely loved because that took me to the sort of the match day and fan-facing operations. Um, Leading on from that, I was appointed to the Deputy Chief Executive and again that allowed me to do some progressive work at the football club, legal, risk, governance, bringing in departments that we'd never seen in the football club before but I thought we needed to prepare us for the future and to safeguard the football club. So um, yes, I was there and served as Robert's Deputy for a number of years and then was privileged to be given the opportunity to lead the football club as Chief Executive Officer last year. Uh, one of the big things you've just talked about there is obviously the stadium um there's a lot of engagement already gone on and i think we've got, we're just about to embark on on further engagement um 
just talk us through what what you know what, what we're coming to now with regards to that and how your involvement in very much a leading role you know sort of pans out with this yeah i mean obviously i don't think it's any exaggeration to say that we are currently transitioning through one of the most important phases in in the history of the football club and the new stadium provides so many commercial and operational opportunities for us to compete at the top of the league so it's uh, it's a really significant project and um, it's something that the fans have wanted for many years and um, they've been extremely tolerant and patient when maybe things haven't progressed at the rate that they would want them to I'm an Evertonian I want a new home to play football in but I want the right home for Everton to play football in and um, this opportunity is something we are dedicated to daily we now have a stadium team installed at the Royal Library building our list of technical advisors we have our architect appointed we did the first phase of consultation which is again extremely significant for the stadium in terms of planning in terms of consultation across the city region and the percentage weightings back the responses from that consultation were really extremely positive not just from Evertonians but from people across the city region who can identify this stadium as more than just a stadium as a regeneration project for the whole of the city so looking at what it brings to um, to the region is, you know, it's incredible social value as well as that commercial and economic value it will bring to the football club, which is which is what we need to be able to compete at the top of the game. Mm. When you look at when you look at it, when you you know, because it's very easily uh, easy to get into the sort of here and now and what's happening right at the moment. But when you step out and look at where it is in the history of the club, and yeah. it is quite a momentous moment, isn't it? Really, it is a momentous moment, and it's one we have to get right. And that's why you know it is forensic. The preparation for this is forensic. And we'll have fans who are in this industry in the construction industry who are architects who I'm sure will be sitting there in support of the club understanding the um, you know the scrutiny and how robust we have to be in this planning for the new stadium but for me as chief executive the you know the aspiration for me is to be able to communicate and clarify things for fans as early and as often as possible so I don't want fans to think we haven't heard for a couple of weeks does that mean the stadium has stalled we will, we will talk at the times that we need to, to make sure people are consulted with and informed. And that's really important to me um, as chief executive. And there's a significant amount of work that goes on with the teams. We understand about the site, the location, the environmental impacts of selecting that site, the construction impacts of selecting that site. But when we get it right, it will be superb for generations to come and we have to get it right. So we're entering the second phase of consultation again engaging the business communities, um, UNESCO, World Heritage, um, all of the stakeholders who we are going back out to and then reaching a point to take consultation on design. Okay uh, and, and of course big part of that is the Goodison legacy and, and how, how important is Goodison and what happens to Goodison after Goodison if you like? I think, Alan, we've seen many stadium moves in our time and, and some that have been done well and some that have been appalling, really, in terms of neglecting a community where a stadium has lived for many years and generations. So for Everton, it's really important that we exit the community in the right way, that we enter our new community in the correct manner um, and that we never abandon Goodison and Liverpool 4 and that actually what we leave is a vibrant and prosperous community facility that will serve generations to come and respect Liverpool 4 in the way it respected us when we've had our, had our home there and we've entered that community um, every other Saturday so 
very exciting opportunity for us, a parallel project to regenerate both Goodison and Bramley Moor Dock. So I know for many clubs it's very tempting to take a tariff off a house builder or a retail unit or a supermarket and flatten the um, the area and then move off, but that wouldn't be right for Evertonians. So working again with our, our research partner at Liverpool Hope to ensure that we develop something that is innovative and pioneering for um, Goodison Park so that our fans can return and we have a remaining existence there at our spiritual home and then ensuring there is almost a toffee trail from our old stadium down to the new one. So again, lots of investigation and research going on into that um, rather than just sort of packing up and going. That wouldn't be right for fans and it wouldn't be right for the ethos and philosophy of our football club. Um, we sit here in, in Finch Farm and the sun's shining down and I think everybody thinks that people in football put their feet up yeah. dur- during the summer months and have a rest. It's not the, not the case, is it? I, I mean, the, the transfer window is on us. Um, even just recently, you know, there was a big debate on my Twitter account about how transfers are done. There's always been a criticism in my day here, you know, about how, how long it takes for Everton yeah. to get a transfer. But it really isn't that simple is it can you give us a sort of an insight into it's into very complex look we all have as Evertonians and football fans we have an insatiable appetite for information and to understand where our club is how we're competing and the deals we're involved in for Everton it's really important that we release details at the right time so that we are clear um, and things are confirmed and I think our fans respect that and, and know that um, we want to communicate we want to communicate early we're disappointed when others don't follow the same process and we wholly appreciate the frustration that presents to fans it presents the same frustration to us um, but there's a lot of complexities in the in drawing up the complex the um, contracts and um, and we're just clear that we have to get that right I remember sitting in front of uh, the fantastic Sir Philip Carter many, many years ago when we were expecting a Brazilian called Muller to yeah. come into the dress, into the uh, the press conference, and and he didn't turn up, and it, it was that late. And I think a great indication that you know things are never done until they're done. And I think is that an important message? Absolutely, yeah. The contractual mm. matters are of real significance. The value attached to the contracts. Um, is significant and we have to get it right we have to get it right for the players we have to get it right for the fans we have to get it right for the club so we would never build in a delay it would be perverse of, of fans to think that we would do that that's not in the club's interest we want to communicate and we want the messaging to come from Everton we want to be that first source of communication so um, it's people like me means around. it doesn't happen no. absolutely <laughs> so we'd like your help <laughs> I think in terms of, of you know the obviously the summer period and the fans go away and then they come back and um, after the break the staff certainly don't and it's probably the busiest period for us because we get into a routine when the season starts where we know when the games are we're all prepared the um, maintenance schedule has been delivered etc but you know we're a club on the move we're, we're developing and we're progressing so there is no downtime at Everton for us um, which is what certainly we're fostering myself Marcel and, and Marco that um, it's all about progression and pus- pushing forward and challenging best. So in the outer season this year, um, every lounge at Goodison will be refurbished. So we have a large scale um, refurbishment programme on at Goodison. Um, obviously, we have the players in, the players are not just first team, but under 23. So significant player activity there. Um, pre-season tour, which obviously takes a lot of time to prepare and deliver. Um, and then obviously preparing for the phase two consultation. 
um, as well as all of those sort of Premier League responsibilities and regulatory um, responsibilities that we have to attend to during the out of season. So certainly no time to sit still, Alan. It's an incredibly busy time for us in football. On the transfer front, um, <coughs> we saw uh, the club captain depart uh, this summer. Just talk to us a little bit about uh, Phil Jagielka because I think it was still sort of undecided what was happening at the end of the season. So uh, what would you say with regards to Phil Jagielka? I think I'd echo the words of our chairman who referred to him as one of our greatest ever servants, um, both as a player and and as a human being. You know, Jags uh, will be a great loss to us and somebody who I think perfectly embodies the spirit and the values of Everton Football Club. Um, Fantastic captain, great player absolute contribution and commitment to Everton Football Club and as I say both on and off the pitch also a great community champion ambassador for Everton in the community community. so um, really sad to see him go Um, and what a wonderful wonderful contribution he's given to our football club in the time he served us. Um, it's all about the future now and, and, and one of the things this, this summer is about, about pre-season there was some anxiety I think from the fans should we say about the pre-season programme and when it was coming how, how difficult is it to pull a pre-season programme together because you have to work closely I guess with Marcel and with Marco yeah. I mean again Alan you'll know from when you worked with us here at Everton just how complex these things are it's not as simple as putting a game or you know schedule together um, there's a lot of hard work that goes into pre-season fixtures and it's not always a straightforward process you know when you're looking for the correct opponents you know and Marcel and Marco are very clear that the competition has to be there so you know it's about sourcing and finding and securing the opposition ensuring it's in the right location ensuring the commercials um, stack up and that that's um, appropriate so um and making sure that there is that sort of high-class European opposition, which our fans deserve to go and watch and our players deserve to compete against. So it's not as simple as I think many people would anticipate. However, um, again, I want us to be, um, you know, as, as to gather pace and make sure that, you know, as far as we can, that we communicate the fixtures as early as possible for fans to enable them to be able to range, to visit and take part in, in the pre-season. Um, schedule, so um, it certainly is something we'll be looking at. They do like a summer away trip, don't they, the Evertonians? Yeah, they do. <laughs> they enjoy they do. themselves. Um, listen, football's very much a global um, business now, certainly the Premier League. How important is that at Everton? I mean, and, you know, pe- people look at the, 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 you know, the sort of um, hashtag, if you like, the People's Club, yeah. and and it, it feels a little bit insular at times. Mm-hmm. Is the global view of football very much on the agenda here? It, I think it's vitally important, and I, I, you know, we are very proud to be referred to as the People's Club, and we're very deep-rooted in our local community, and I hope fans will be very proud at how we respect and respond to our local fans um, and ensure we never ever take them for granted but our aspirations are global and it's important that they are so whether that's our commercial our growth in commercial partnerships whether that's attending to a wider fan base helping people understand more about Everton creating a wider audience um, it's something that we certainly have to do and want to do um, but I never think it's a negative to be referred to as the People's Club in fact it's something that many of our peers and competitors um, uh, you know, feel that we have strength in and say maybe we've lost our way a little along the way. So it's something that we have to make sure we attend to our local fans. But 
very global and um, commercially it's something that we need to to be very attentive to and, and push forward uh, with uh, rigor just finally um you're an Evertonian. I think one of the things when I worked back here uh, that came across to me was your love for the club. Um, what are your memories? What, who are your heroes? What you know? I, th- I think you know the majority of people who work here they're just absolutely staunch Evertonians, and as I am, we love the football club. But that's not enough, Alan. You've also got to be the best you can be at your job. Yeah. So we do have passion and commitment and drive, and we love the club. But we also want to have the best people in the positions to drive the football club forward. So we're, we're very pragmatic and we're very focused on success and competition, even though um, we're fans. And I think that's important to say because, you know, we need to ensure that our fan base understand how and why we make certain decisions. Um, so certain decisions may, may not be what you would instantly feel is correct as a fan, but it's right as a business leader. So I think that's important to get across. Fantastic memories of the football club. Um, you know, obviously, Graham Sharp is a, a big hero of mine. Um, and I just absolutely adore having the chance to work with him each and every day. And I have wonderful family memories, you know, making rosettes and um, dressing the windows up in blue and white on derby days, going across to Anfield with my dad for my first game and, and all of those things. But I also think when you have an attachment with Everton Football Club, you know, I'm also... You know, one of those who believes my greatest memories are still to come. You know, when I look at the opportunity we have at the Liver Building, the master plan for Finch Farm, a new um, young manager with real aspiration and drive, Marcel, a very, um, you know, reflective and committed director of football, an investor and a chairman um, who want to do the best for this football club and, you know, ensure that both financially and in terms of time and commitment. I think our, our days are still to come. My memories are, are still to be created in terms of the best times I have with Everton Football Club. It, it is an odd one, isn't it? Because I remember when I was here, not so much in the last period, but before that, you sort of have to switch off your Evertonian in you when you're in the in the business because you need to do the business correctly. And it, it is, it, it's not difficult to do, but it is something that you are conscious of doing, isn't it? Yeah, I think you have to do that because you will look through the Everton lens at things which could skew your judgment. Mm. So we have to be very careful with that and I'm also you know so I do make sure you know that the, although the fans are Evertonians as I said sorry the staff are Evertonians uh, you know we're very clear that that's not enough you know you have to be an Evertonian but you have to be exceptional at the role you're, you're delivering because that's what our fans expect and that's what as fans we would expect so that challenge is there and understood and appreciated actually. Is it going to be an exciting summer and an exciting season? I hope so I'm very much <coughs> looking forward to it I think you know we've had as I say, reflecting on your first question about the last 12 months, if you looked at it in a reasonable and rational way, you know, we had a manager, we looked at this time last year, I was appointed as chief exec, so a chief, a long-serving chief executive had left. We'd had instability in terms of manager and first-team backroom staff and director of football. Um, we changed our board, so when you looked at a 12 months time, we've moved to the library building, we're developing the master plan at Finch Farm, and the stadium is moving um, and progressing. So I think, you know, we've had a, a fantastic 12 months and that sort of infrastructure and scaffolding has set us up now to really start to perform um, and deliver for the fans moving forward. The Royal Blue Podcast from the Liverpool Echo. 
Exciting times ahead then. Certainly an interesting time to be an Evertonian listening to Denise Barrett-Baxendale there. And don't forget, if you have any views on anything we have on this podcast, you can discuss it on my Twitter account or the Everton Echo Twitter page. Don't forget, still to come, my interview with the wonderful Colin Harvey, not one to miss. And we'll hear also from Mayor of Greater Manchester, Andy Burnham, shortly. But first, I spent a great day at St George's Park last weekend. The FA Disability Cup finals were on, and it was especially good as Everton's amputee team beat Portsmouth to lift the trophy after a couple of years of disappointment. Straight after he collected the cup... I spoke with our very own Steve Johnson. Superb, absolutely brilliant, yeah. I mean, we went a cold down, as usual kind of thing, but uh, to come back and win 4-1, it's absolutely brilliant. We've lost the last couple of years here, so, you know, third time lucky, really, but made up for all the lads, really. Um, Dominated the game, didn't you? Very much so, yeah. They had, they had one, one shot on target, really, and scored, and, um, you know, we, we just... You know, kept lots of possession, had lots of chances, we just couldn't score, but it all came together second half and really proud of the lads, really. And a goal for the old fella at the end? <laughs> yeah, yeah, don't get many, like, yeah, so um, uh, I scored in the Champions League a couple of weeks ago, so, uh, you know, at my age, um, I savour every minute of it and to, you know, score for Everton, my, my boyhood team, um, you know, it doesn't get any better than that. And Steve, I remember when you came into Goodison, you started this this team off, this disabled team, and you've worked so hard over the years to keep it going, to, to put the support in, to, you know, to do everything for it. How difficult a journey has it been for you? It, yeah, it's very challenging because... Um, you know, you know, disabled people don't have the same opportunities as non-disabled people. So, you know, this is next year is our 20th year of our disability program. You know, so we're really proud of that. And we, you know, we've got nine teams now that represent the club um, for all different age groups. Uh, we've got a female team as well. You know, so really pleased that it's developed so much over the last few years. You know, obviously funding is, is a challenge kind of thing every year to uh, to keep that maintained. But um, hopefully, you know, that'll that'll be okay in the future. And Everton in the community again showing that they, they do things first, don't they? they? Very much so, yeah, yeah. Everton were one of the uh, first clubs to get involved in in, in the old one-to-one Ability Counts programme. We're one-to-one were our sponsors at that time, you know, and they, they've kept it going ever since, kind of thing, really. You know, which is fair play to them, kind of thing, really. You know, so you know we've got about forty odd different projects at, at Everton in the community, but um, you know this is one one of my favourites. Cup winners, how does that sound? Cup, it sounds absolutely fantastic. And well done to all the team, but especially the hard work over many years by Steve Johnson. Anyone who knows him will know the uh, the hard work he's put in over 20-odd years at Everton. Now, Andy Burnham was thrust into the spotlight at Anfield during the 20th anniversary of the Hillsbury disaster when, as a Labour MP, he was heckled when making a speech. The next day, he asked Prime Minister Gordon Brown to raise the subject in Parliament, which eventually led to that second inquiry into the disaster. A lifelong Evertonian, Andy sat down with me to discuss that time in his life and growing up as a Blue. Well, I think um, it, it was Joe Royal first, I think. That was my first memory, mm. unpacking a, a number nine blue shirt out of one of those old Umbro boxes. I think that was one of my earliest uh, Christmas memories and that was uh, for Big Joe at the time. And there was a myth went round that he broke the net or something at some game <laughs> and, that, and my dad told me this in... Uh, Sort of uh, reverential tones, and um, it was, it, and then it, I think he got sold to City, didn't he? Yep. Around that that time, it was, must have been about seventy five, and then the real hero emerged, which was uh, Bob Latchford. I was obsessed with, uh, with with Bob. I suppose all Evertonians were, weren't they? But yeah, I mean, idolised. I think is the word. And even <laughs> even when the perm arrived, it, it didn't have any effect. <laughs> <laughs> well, it wouldn't be the same without the perm, would it? Really, but uh, it, I, he did. 
give something to Evertonians oh. during that time, didn't he? Um, you know, because we didn't have a lot to talk about in those in those dark days of the seventies, but he just gave something back to Evertonians that we could hold on to. Because obviously, I wouldn't have remembered the um, you know the coming through the the early part of the seventies, which did go downhill, didn't it? After they'd won the league, I just you know I just remember being mesmerised by this this character, you know, a big big sort of presence in every way, and the way. He, he sort of scored his goals, was kind of emphatic, wasn't it? And um, yeah, my earliest memories of Goodison are seeing Bob Latchford, Dave Thomas and Bob Latchford. Um, and yeah, completely fallen in love with the place and with him. And um, yeah, just wanted to be him and still do, actually. Uh, yeah, and, and and I think, you know, we've talked, I've talked today with um, with uh, Colin Harvey, you know, and, and, and I think he sort of came to life. He talked about himself and he wasn't he wasn't really comfortable talking about himself as a player. But when yeah, he came to life, Colin, right? yeah, when he yeah. talked about the 80s side. And of course, I think we all, you know, went, went on a roller coaster, didn't we, for, for the 80s. How fantastic it was. Absolutely. So Stoke Away was my 14th birthday. Uh, and so I remember that vividly, mm. um, you know the whole thing everything about it so when I heard Howard speak about it many years later it was like a real moment of wow yeah we felt like that to us and it did to him and the players so absolutely you know that well all the way back to the uh, the Kevin Brock uh, back pass um, it, it was I'm trying to think when that was it was around that time as well wasn't yeah, it we yeah. beat Stoke away I don't think we were we were aware at that point that we were going somewhere because mm. we'd just come through that Nil-nil with Coventry, I think, hadn't we, on a New Year's Eve, was it? Yes, I think it was. I was yeah. at that game, and that was a pretty... We've had yeah, many was, low yeah. points, but yeah, that, that wasn't was a, a good day. No, I'm, I'm thinking you would, we were down to, like, 12,000 or something. Yeah. Yeah, it was a, yeah. I, my memory of it was just deadly, you know. It was, and, But then that, that uh, third round, uh, and then I remember having months being off school with my brother in the lounge listening to that Oxford uh, away game and the, the famous Brock... Back pass and um, uh, and then that was it, wasn't it? I don't think we turned back, did we? After that, and uh, one thing led to another. So, yeah, I mean, we were—I wouldn't say we were home and away that year. We were every home game um, and the odd away game as sort of a fourteen-year-old lad. And you know, I, I, I suppose I timed my growing up pretty well, didn't I? Yeah. At fourteen in 1984. And and how did um, how did Everton fit into your life as sort of growing up? Did, you know, sort of politics-wise as well. Uh, how did that fit in? Well, the politics hadn't kind of come in at that point, mm. so I was just doing the normal things. I wanted to be a footballer. My, my brother had a trial for Everton. I never did. I was more of a cricketer actually, so I was <laughs> I was playing cricket to a decent standard. But you know, we we were going to 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 all of the games, pretty normal. Yeah, you know, woolly back sort of childhood, really. <laughs> yeah, growing up in a little place called Culture. Um uh, Did you have a choice at that time? I mean, was there a choice? You know, was team it, was it sort of ever, always Everton? Oh no, it? no, never a choice. No. no, genuinely, because both all of my mum's family and all of my dad's family, all Everton, not not even mm. not one aberration anywhere. Yeah. So it was no, it, I, I've never any con, kind of conception of the idea of choice in football. It was, it was as it was as a sort of instilled as the Catholic Church and uh, latterly the Labour Party. I've always said that, those three things. I never felt I had a great deal of choice about. Chosen, I think, is what they say, don't they? Yeah. Um, but, but uh, I mean, uh, when you look at some of those players, you know, during the 80s, we all sort of... What, what are the games that stick out for you? Of course, Bayern Munich, we've talked about that today. And 
are there any other the games? The one that sticks out for me is not Bayern. I was at Bayern Munich, uh, so I was at the game, and of course, you know, I mean, you, you know, I'm not undermining it anyway. But the one that sticks out for me is uh, the semi-final against Arsenal against. Uh, Southampton, Southampton, the hybrid. Uh, that's the one. If I could single out one that kind of brought the whole thing into like full technical, or it was it was that one and that goal when it went in. I was right over those hoardings and onto the pitch, and that was after the goal went in, and then my cousin went on at full time. You know, we were we were. Oh, yeah, we were on match of the day. I think that night, as uh, as, as later has been revealed in my political life. Uh, but yeah, I, I was a bit of a serial pitch invader. Actually, it, it was one of those things, wasn't it? Um, uh, the breaking of the dam, wasn't it? it yeah, was like, but, yeah, but it was that. I think if if you ask any Evertonian to, to paint the picture of Adrian Heath's celebration there, you know, the when he run away from the goal, I think everyone can. Yeah. It one of those moments, wasn't oh, it? In time. Oh God, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, that's the day I I, um, I think I remember most fondly of that era because it just you know it, it felt like that it was the moment we were really starting to to break through. So. Has um, has Everton ever sort of crossed in your politi- political life? Is it you know the yeah there was one big moment um, which came when I was culture secretary and then on to being health secretary and it was the whole uh, proposed move to Kirby Um, and I'll just be honest I wasn't in favour so I was kind of involved loosely with an organisation called Goodison for Everton Uh, and I used to meet them before games in the Glebe on County Road and I gave them advice about how to pursue their case is what I can say but then some at the club at the time thought I was manipulating the process within government, you know, that I was... Because I think it was John Denham, I think, from memory, who made uh, the decision. And I thought um, that they would say this, that I'd somehow... And I never did. I never rang him. I never, you know, I, I was scrupulous about that because I knew that... Um, but, you know, I, but, but I did advise those who were seeking to... Um, not, not, because, not with any inside knowledge, just simply to tell them about how how campaigns of this kind could be developed. So... Yeah, that that was a moment when the fortunes of Everton Football Club, from a sort of a corporate point of view, kind of crisscrossed with my uh, political uh, life, and it was it was awkward. Although I look back and say, God, you know, we, we absolutely made the right decision. Well, you know, you look at it now, and 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 it absolutely was the right decision, wasn't it? When you see what's on the horizon, um, and and let's just talk about that. You know, and I know it's you know it's it's not really for you to talk about it, but as an Evertonian. How excited are you about Bramley Mordor? So I'll tell you what I'm really excited about, and I almost can't contain my excitement about this. It's the thought of the Coppite Metro Mayor of the Liverpool City region cutting the ribbon with a forced smile on his face to open a ground that's a better ground for Everton Football Club than than theirs. Mm. How good will that be? I, honestly, whatever happens in politics, I am waiting for that day and it will be the most beautiful uh, I don't know fulfilling day that I think I will ever have the, the kind of fixed false smile on his face and the the, the jealousy in his eyes it will be marvellous <laughs> I love it I don't know how we've got that in there but we've got it in there somewhere <laughs> um, I, I, I mean 
in all seriousness, and I know you're serious, but in all seriousness, when, when you look at that connection between Everton and Liverpool, of course, you were very much central at one point when uh, over the Hillsborough uh, situation. And, you know, just going back to that moment, uh, how was that for you? You know, how was that a difficult moment for you? Oh, honestly, the, the, the most difficult I'll probably ever have because that was another moment in a bigger way when my professional and my personal lives collided uh, you know in front of the world to be honest and you know I think people know this now because I've said it before but I agonized about whether or not I should go because I knew what it meant I was at Villa Park on the day I knew everything you know everything uh, that everybody knows so I was under no illusions and obviously I've been in a government that hadn't done anything oh, it, it, it tried or it, it kind of gave an impression of reopening Hillsborough in um, in 97, only for it to be kind of stitched back up again by the establishment. Um, so I also though knew I couldn't live with myself if I kind of kind of uh, cowered away from a moment like that. And I've always said it was my brother, my younger brother John, who said to me. I mean, Pete, John will be well known to many Evertonians. You know, he's been to the match all his life. He's you know, season ticket holder in the Lower Gladys. He, he he kind of called it right. He said, "Look, and go if you're going to do something." If you're going to do something, then go. Even if it's difficult, go and then, you know, see what comes. He says, but if you're not going to follow through, then don't, you know, because that, you know, what what good is that to anybody? And I kind of was resolved to do something even before I went. And I was almost braced for something to happen on that day. So when it did happen, though it was difficult, I was almost kind of, I don't know, it was a kind of moment of relief in a funny kind of way. Because if I look back at it, I don't watch it often, but if I do ever see it, I kind of almost see a bit of relief in my face. You know, I was like, I wasn't agitated, if you know what I mean, yeah, about it. Yeah, so yeah, I was just yeah. kind of almost ready for for that to happen. And, um, you know, I look back on it as the best thing that did happen um, because it was the moment the dam broke, wasn't it? It was the moment that Hillsborough went back into the living rooms of people right across the land and they realised that something was still, uh, st- still um, unsettled with the whole issue. I think it also um, created a sense around the relationship between Everton and Liverpool fans, didn't it, at the time? And, and I think it had a, a huge bearing on, on the way the two clubs came together around that time. Would that be fair to say? Well, I, I hope so, Al. I mean, I, I don't know for. I, I hope so, you know, because obviously the club are in our club are in touch with me through and often getting messages of support from Bill and mm. and other people saying you're doing the right thing, kid. You know, in the way that he would, and mm. you know that that meant something. You know, I was kind of appreciated that, and David Moyes at the time was really kind as well, as as he would be, and so I did think I was, you know, doing it with the support of of our club behind me, and that meant a meant a great deal so it's hard you know it, it, it was just you know god it was hard on 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 every level and we've all had our ups and downs of them haven't we over over the years and we still do and it took me seven days to go back into liverpool after uh, the champions league uh, uh, final but um there were even in the old days was that sense wasn't there of something bigger than football and it was true at the 89 Cup final, wasn't it? And do, do, do you think they've sort of been lost a little bit? In re- we've seen quite a bit of talk re- recently about the relationship between you know the Everton, Evertonians and Liverpoolians. Do you think there's been a bit of that sort of receded? Well, it does, doesn't it? It comes and goes according to incidents and games, doesn't it? You know, you know that Pickford game. I mean, it was just. I mean, it threw <laughs> us into reverse, didn't it? For what? I don't know, three months or something. It was a, a nightmare, wasn't it? And then that kind of you know. So as I say that. The, the relationship on that superficial level goes up and down and up and down, but there's that there's that underlying understanding, isn't there? When it when the 
yeah, when, it, when it gets serious that, that, that there's a deeper yeah. sort of connection uh, there and um, yeah I mean I was always kind of aware of that and as I say it mattered that the club were always sending me their messages of support and that, that kind of made me think I was I was doing the right thing but when I look back at the 20th anniversary I've always said I've had many bad afternoons at Anfield and I'm certain I'm going to have many more in my life so it was nothing new in one way <laughs> uh, When you're in your current position now does football affect you a lot in in the city is is this something that you you know you're very much sort of connected to oh massively you know it's the lifeblood of manchester in the same way it is of liverpool um so i'm, I'm mayor of greater manchester so i've got a, a number of clubs beyond city yes, and united course, yeah. and the whole place is a is a football place and it, it you know it's it often strikes me the two places and the the, the populations of both are they're very similar mm. i mean the, you know, there are differences but not not many, really, and I always think of the Royal Family Television program. Most Northwest families, I think, are a bit of a mix of both. I mean, I am. Um, people know I was born in Liverpool, but age one, we left Formby, and my dad got a job in Manchester. So I grew up in the area where I'm talking to you now, um, in the kind of Culture Lee area, you know, halfway between. As I said, true, true, woolly back, and actually probably lent more to Manchester in terms of kind of going shopping or music, you know. So I very much of both cities always have been. And people know that. And I wouldn't, I don't mind, you know, the reason why I have no qualms about doing the, the podcast is that I'm not going to pretend that I don't support no. uh, Everton. Of course I do. I have done yeah. all, all, all my life. In some ways, is that an advantage when you, you know, you, you can be seen to not be biased, if you like, you know, because if you were in another city, let's say, you know, you could be seen to be biased, you know. Is that an advantage? It, yeah, I, I, I always, I, I say that. Obviously, we're the acceptable face of Merseyside football, aren't we? And that <laughs> that that, uh, that helps. And I always, whenever this comes up, and people say, oh, how do you manage that? Yeah. I just say, well, it's easy. I'm utterly impartial. I'm equally in favour of City and United beating Liverpool uh, on every occasion that they meet. <laughs> <laughs> um, as far as Everton now, uh, when you look at Marco Silva, and there's been a lot of talk, hasn't there, about you know whether I mean he went through that terrible time as you mentioned before, the three months after the after the derby, and uh, but you you sensed at the end of the season that there was some hope and some you know there was a pattern emerging of what the future held. Yeah, no, definitely. I I um I say don't get, don't get to every game these days, but the ones I did get to. Um, I was at Burnley away over the Christmas period, and I thought, "Oh, hang on a minute, we've come." Yeah, and yeah. then it then it went sort yeah. of pear shaped again, didn't it? But no, there were a few performances, weren't there, that really started to make you think. Now, hang on a minute, and actually, we are in danger of becoming one of those clubs that people say, "Oh, you know, they don't stick by any." But you know, we're becoming too fickle, course, yeah. and we're not fickle. No one's fickle at Everton, but the kind of social media area can make you a bit like that. You know, a few bad games, and oh, get rid of them. Get, I think we could see with with Ronald, it was just wasn't working, was it? There was something deeply not right there, wasn't there? In the in the whole mm. setup, um, and as I say, I mean, you know, Allardyce for me was never. I mean, I've nothing against Sam, but you know, it, it, it never was the fit for me. He was never an Everton manager for my. Yeah, I think family. a lot of Evertonians felt that, didn't they? Oh, I said it, yeah. and I said it to the club, and yeah, I can. Well, no, in some ways, I can't understand why they did it. Really, in some mm. ways, but still, I'm not going to. You know, I'm not going to. Uh, you know, it, it it helped us in a temporary way, didn't it? And I think possibly came with a with a, a, a you know that sort of I don't know what to call it stigma, but he came with that 
sort of idea that he saved clubs and I don't think you know no one really wanted to see him knocking on their door did he and 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 in fairness to him you know I think he you know he did what he was asked to do he got them up to the to the top end of the table I just don't think we were in crisis when he came though to be honest and um, I think you know but for me though Everton represents something doesn't it and it's not so much you know, a, a style of football as a, as a sort of way of life, and I just didn't ever see Sam as an Everton manager, from if, if I'm honest. Yeah. And um, uh, I think I don't know. Maybe other people will have a different view, but um, yeah, I don't that, think you're in the minority. That's probably okay. That yeah, yeah. <laughs> but yeah. Anyway, to be fair, he, you know, he left us in a slightly better place than he found us, and that's that's always you know a win for a manager, isn't it? But um, no, I, I I don't want us to get into that position of because I, I look back at it and I think we. We're in danger as well, aren't we, of rewriting history too quickly. David Moyes was unbelievably brilliant for Everton Football Club. If you think of the club where it was when he took us on and the backing and the time we gave him, he slowly took us forward, didn't he? Almost year by year through yeah. through that decade or so. And we've got to get back to giving people time, I think. As long as it's not... I know the fear of relegation is, is, is sort of uh, terrifying, but... You know, give people time. Give Marco a bit of time now. I, I was getting worried, but no, give him time. We've seen enough. And I think it's also important, though, isn't it, to point out the influence of Marcel Brands, mm. who I've had the good fortune to meet a few times. He clearly knows a player, doesn't he? So, you know, give he this... He has that look about him, doesn't he? He, do... yeah. he does. I mean, he's terrifying when you, you sit near him in the... Uh... <laughs> In, in, in the uh, the posh seats, um, you know, I don't know if he ever played for Feyenoord, but I remember going to Feyenoord away with Everton, and he looks like he might have done because he's got that sort of uh, that pretty fearsome Dutch look about him, and uh, yeah, he's, he's a no nonsense kind of character, isn't he? You, you do sense that he has a, he has a plan, and and he has he's a he's a man who sees a plan through. Yeah, that 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 comes over, doesn't it? He's he's a a, a very impressive character, and um, I think the quality of the players we signed uh, last summer uh, probably is the best collection since um, that Roberto transfer window, isn't it? Mm. When he brought in um, was it James yeah, McCarthy Lukaku, and Barry, uh, Luka- Barry, yeah, yeah Gareth Barry and uh, Lukaku, Dina. I mean, he is the most. Um, High quality player I've seen arrive and instantly play well and do it all year. He's one of the most accomplished players I think I've ever seen come to Everton Football Club. Um, but also, I mean, uh, Zuma. I thought you know, I hope we can we can sign him on a permanent basis. Um, but the others, the others too. That some of them showed more as the season went on. You know, these were quality players that they brought in. Hope a lot of hope. Oh, God, it kills us, it? <laughs> absolutely destroys us. I, I, yeah, I, yeah, yeah. Hope. I mean, I just want a trophy. And if I could, through your podcast, relay one message uh, to Marco and Marcel, it's this: for God's sake, give the the League Cup a proper go. Don't do what you did last year. That was devastating. You know, we can use that competition to to get ourselves going. As we did with that Brock back pass, you know, that's a good principle, you know. Throw something big at it and throw something big at the FA Cup. I mean, that Millwall game was a bloody nightmare. Shocker. Mm. Shocker, you know. Throw a big effort at both of those cup competitions this year. Everton Football Club needs a trophy. The Royal Blue Podcast from the Liverpool Echo. Well, I'm sure you'll all agree, a very interesting guy Andy is. And of course, we all agree with him about the Cups, I'm sure. 
Well, now on to an interview with a real hero of mine, not just because he was a great player, not because he was a great coach and not because he managed our great club. Colin Harvey is my hero because he's the most humble and down-to-earth man I've met in football. Honest as the days long, talented, but without any ego whatsoever. I hope you enjoy the chat I had with him uh, a few days ago. We began right back when he joined the club as a young boy. Once I got there, um, it was uh, it was unbelievable, anyway, because I've been in Evertonian since I was a kid, and my dad had been in Evertonian, and his dad before, and my granddad on my mother's side as well. All I ever got regaled was with uh, Taylor Dixie Dean, and uh, then suddenly I'm I'm there and I'm playing in the C, B, and then the A teams, and then all of a sudden from nothing, I'm playing in the uh, the first team. September after they'd won the league in 63 and uh, I'm playing it into Milan of all places. I was going to say, what footballer can look back and say, I played, started my debut, the debut in Europe against Inter Milan. I mean, how much of a shock was that goal? Well, it, I mean, on the Saturday we'd be told to come in on the, um, on the Monday with the, our travelling equipment, obviously, and uh, I thought, oh, we'd, we'd just be lugging skips around me and uh, Roy Parnell and Barry Reese. So anyway, sure enough, we were, we were lugging the skips and then on Wednesday afternoon, we had a bit of lunch, and Addy Cassidy just went, um, I'm making a change, um, Dennis is moving back to the number four, and Colin, you come in at number eight. And it was like, what he just said there? Did I yeah. hear what he said? And yeah, so, lucky enough, he, he kept it as quiet as possible, and so I only had the afternoon, and then the game was played that night, and looking back, I didn't do too bad, I didn't do brilliantly, but I didn't do too bad, considering it was the European Cup against the, the team that won it that year. And wanted the following year as well. Yeah. It was like getting thrown in ten foot end, wasn't it? A yeah, yeah, bats. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, not a stream battle it was for us then. But honestly, it was just he kept it so quiet and so low key that I, I, I didn't have time to get nervous. And did that help you? Oh, it did. Yeah, because mm. as I said, I didn't get time to get nervous, and I just went in. And next minute, I, I, I did okay. I did do brilliant. Then we got back on the Thursday, th- late Thursday afternoon. And I went in Friday morning, and I was playing in the reserves on the Saturday. So talk about coming back down to earth into Milan to yeah, the Resi yeah, yeah. against Liverpool reserves, though. So oh well, that's yeah, all right. Yeah, yeah, that was a big game. Yeah, yeah. but I mean, it, you know, you look at the kids today when they come into the side, and they're instant superstars, aren't they? After like three or four games, you know, we're we're, yeah. we're all calling the names. And yeah. I mean, was there any of that at that time? Oh, Were no, you very no. much you no, say back I, down to that earth? That was it. And then I didn't get a, another look until um, the following. Easter, uh, same season but following Easter, mm. and we played Blackburn at Blackburn, uh, and Blackburn were about third or fourth in the league, and we were second or third as well. So um, we beat them two 0 at Blackburn, and I played quite well. And that was just before the Easter, and on the Good Friday, we were at home to um, West Brom, and I had an absolute nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, I couldn't do a thing right, and the crowd would boo me in the end. And so, next day we went in, and I was I was reserved or twelfth man for the the uh, reserves at Manchester City. So talk about going from the Friday to the Saturday. That was it. You but, know, keep yourself grounded. But reserves. I mean, we talk about the reserves in those days. The reserves were quite a big deal, weren't oh, they? Well, you yeah, know, because forty-two these, games a season. Yeah, and, and you you played at Goodison one week, and then the next week you maybe at Liverpool. You played Anfield, and, mm. and so on. You know, you played Man City. You played 
Old Trafford out there against Man United. So it was like it was just mirrored the first team. Do you think like young players today miss out on that? Because you know it was very much. I mean, when I first started supporting Everton, you know, and was going to Everton's games, you know, um, it, to just go on a Saturday, as I say, to watch people like Ronnie Goodless and people like that in the resies, you know, yeah. was was a big deal. Uh, and I guess as a as a player, it, it, it gave you a chance to play at these big stadiums. And yeah, I mean, I can remember playing uh, against uh, Liverpool, against Goodison and at Anfield in front of twenty odd thousand people. Mm-hmm. You know, if at that that stage, if people, if say we were playing reserves were playing at Goodison and people couldn't get in at Anfield, they'd come over to Goodison oh, yeah. and, and there'd be twenty odd thousand people you'd be playing yeah. in front of. Yeah. You you know, seventeen, eighteen, and you've you've been playing on school fields, and all of a sudden you're playing in front of twenty thousand and at Goodison. How did you establish yourself in the side? How did that come about? Well, the, the following season, the start of the sixty five, sixty six season. Oh, sorry, sixty four, sixty five season. Mm-hmm. I I I I'm started in the team and played nearly every game that season, which was. Uh, which was quite unheard of then, and it was just, it just uh, followed. I mean, it wasn't something um, I'd planned or thought about or anything. He just, Catholic just said to me, uh, he started the first game of the season, and I'm all that stayed in the team right, right through that season. What was he like as a manager, Carl, Harry? Because he's someone we don't really know a lot about. He was quite, he was quite private, wasn't he? He was very private. Yeah, I mean, he he, he didn't come out and watch a lot of training sessions either. He had his his his. Uh, uh, office at such an angle that he yeah. could look out and see everywhere on Belfield, <laughs> and um, that's the way he managed most of the time. But he, he was, uh, it, if you you knew you played well, if you came in at the end of the game and you helped you off with your shirt, and you you, you got, <laughs> I thought oh, I must have done all right today if he's helped me off with my shirt. So that was that was how you knew you'd done all right. Yeah. Not that if he, he'd turn around and say to you, "Oh, you you played really well today," or anything like that. You know, he just picked the back of his shirt up and you go. Oh, we've done all right today, I, I, and I guess it wasn't long for you to wait to 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 feel success and to see success with that side because the next season, of course, was you know the uh, was was the FA Cup. We won the cup, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's what one of the uh, biggest um, achievements in uh, people say to you, what you know, what what was one of the biggest achievements, and winning the FA Cup, which then was absolutely unbelievable. Mm. We. Uh, we we beat Man Man United at uh, at Burden Park and you scored and <coughs> scored and um, just after that Alex Young hit the inside of the post and would have made it two nil and I thought I wish that had gone in two nil we we won it and then at the end of the game you go no I've scored the only goal yeah, of the you've won the FA Cup yeah, game yeah, yeah we yeah. got it to to yeah. the final so that was one of the greatest moments of me. Uh, professional career I saw a great picture actually about that game at Burnham Park where you know you're coming off after the final whistle and, and the joy on your face the joy on other players face must be you know and, and it really sums up what it must have felt yeah well we hadn't had a particularly great season and uh, we got to the uh, we we got beat by Blackpool at Blackpool and I'd scored an own goal I passed the ball back to uh, Jeff Bennett who was in goal that day and he let it go between his legs and and that was like the end of the world. And then all of a sudden, the following week, we were it was the third round of the cup, and we went from that to the end of the season, and we played a more or less like a, a championship side rather than the, like we mid, we finished up middle of the table. But if we hadn't done that, we probably would have been there relegation. But it was just like the the takeoff of uh, mm. of. of uh, of our careers at the time, yeah, and, and and the cup can do that, can't it? A good cup run is oh, so brilliant. Valuable. Yeah, it wasn't until we got to the final, 
Uh, we didn't concede a goal till we got to the final. Uh, and then all of a sudden we were 2-0 down against uh, Sheffield Wednesday and uh, and you think it's the end of the world. In fact, it was the end of the world because my granddad got up and went to the local pub. <laughs> and then when, he was watching in the, uh, in the pub and next minute we scored and then we got the equaliser. And then he had to talk his way back in then so, <laughs> to see us score the winner. Yeah, I mean, what what was it about that team? Because, I mean, when you look at it, and one of the moments that stick out for me was uh, Uncle Jim Gabriel in the corner at the final, you know, within the yeah. last few seconds doing yeah. keepy-ups. I yeah. mean, what a character of a side that was. Well, they, as I said previously, he was one of my favourite players when I went to the club as a young lad. Him and Bobby Collins, who both, at that time, every top English club had a couple of Scots uh, internationals in the side. And uh, the size of Jimmy doing that was just amazing. And it, that's what he was as a man, because the first game I played in at Blackburn, as I said before, wasn't the first game, it was on the fifth. And all of a sudden I got it with something, an elbow or something. And uh, next minute I'm coming round a little bit, and Gabby said, who was that did that? And I said, it must be the left-back. That was the only position I was in at the time. Next minute, the left-back was laid out. So <laughs> that, was, that was Gabby. He, he was like the father figure of yeah, the team. Yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, as we've seen, and, and it happened again, didn't it, in the 80s, where, a, you know, an FA Cup win can sort of create a team, can't it, and create that sort of togetherness. And yeah. did you feel that it did that with that side? Uh, yeah, you're probably right, Al, yeah, because... Um, it went from um, being another one, another not not a very good season to uh, going to Stoke and uh, winning two 0 and Howard opening the window, which backed onto the crowd. Mm-hmm. One, one thing Howard was a brilliant man management. Mm-hmm. He just opened up and said, "I'm not giving you the team talk today. Just listen to that." Yeah. And next minute, the players were like, "Whoa, let's get out there!" Yeah. And we we ended up winning two 0 and that was like set us off for the season. Yeah. And then we won the cup, and then next minute you. With uh, league champions, champions of Europe, it was just a fantastic feeling. Yeah, um, good, just, just carrying on with your playing days. I mean, um, when did the sort of holy trinity begin, and when did it? Did you know at the time that? Hang on a minute, we've got this special bond here between yeah. three players. Well, I, I, I played against them all in junior sides. Uh, played against Howard when he was at Preston in the junior side. Played against Bowley when he was at Blackpool in the junior sides, and. And the other one who sticks out and you know, is George Best, playing against George Best when he was about 17 and I was about a little bit older, maybe 17, maybe 18. And you think, they connect, they're players like yeah. that. So next bit of um, 66 comes and we get beaten uh, the uh, Charity Shield by uh, Liverpool at Goodison. Got beat 1-0, could have been 5 or 6, they murdered us. Mm. And on the Monday, Harry Gassick went out and signed Alan Ball and... Two weeks later, we played Liverpool at uh, at Goodison again, and we beat them three one. And it could have been five. Mm. The difference was was Bowley, really? and all of a sudden, like this fellow walks in and just raises the bar. God, goodness knows how high. So next minute, you you like I've got to try and get as far as close to yeah. that as I can. And that's you just setting off then. And it made me a better player because I had to work harder. To, never going to be as good as him, but you you had to work that hard to be. And then next minute, um, 67 came and uh, and Howard came in. And, and it wasn't a success at first. And then he hurt his knee towards the end of the season. And then he worked through the summer. And then the, the following season started. And you could just sense... I mean, I knew what Bowley was going to do before Bowley knew what he was going to do or he knew what I was going to do before. That's the secret, and, isn't and it? And that was it, you know. Yeah. So you just you were moving early. And 
Howard was making runs and I, I was finding him. And it was just like, it wasn't anything we worked on in training. It was just, you knew what, how good a player they were and what they were going to do next. And all of a sudden it just took off. And is that like a sort of indication of, um, you know, how valuable partnerships within players, within teams, you know, we've seen it down the years, you know, great partnerships. And, yeah. and, and is that, I know this was a trio, but is that, you know when teams start to gel when they get those partnerships between players. Yeah, it was. It, it, Understand. It, as I say, it was. It was nothing we worked on. It was so. It was just a case of understanding what they, where they were going to move, where where I was going to move, and what they were going to do. And it just got better and better as the time went on. It takes on. time, doesn't yeah. it? That. No, it, it didn't really. It, it, the only thing that took time was um, how it's knee injury and then getting hmm. getting fit enough to um, making the, the the bridge from the. First, it's a second division as it was then to the first division, you know. And yeah. once that did, it it just sort of took off. And, and then did, we had four or five years of where we knew exactly what everyone was going to be doing. Did you hang around together, uh, you know, off the off the uh, pitch as well? Yeah, or? we were. They, they were different. We're all different characters. Um, Bowley was obviously the most outgoing, as you, you probably. Yeah. You, I don't know if you've you've had any. Deal. Oh yeah. Yeah, but he, he he was. And then Howard and I were on sort of a par, but we were. Friends, but uh, different characters. Mm. So we, you know, we we didn't hang around together all the time, but we did go out together. Did you ever fall out? Uh, oh, on the field, yeah, yeah. yeah. Really, yeah, <laughs> yeah. We had a few uh, little rocks on the field, but once that Monday came, you were back at playing again, and that was it. Yeah, but that 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 isn't that a part of a good relationship that you can you can tell each other oh, when yeah. it's not right. Yeah, yeah. If I've made a run and didn't get the ball, or one of them had made the run and they didn't get the ball, they turn around and say you should have done it. And yeah. as you say, it, it was uh, it's a it's a start of a uh, development. Bob leadership ship. as yeah, well. It's yeah. about leadership, isn't yeah. it? Um, but, but you know, uh, we talk about Borley. Actually, I remember um, from my point of view being on a. I was embarrassingly on a top table with him. Would you believe? And I couldn't believe I was in this situation. It was at Marine Football Club. But I think it shows the measure of the man in the fact that I was sat there as the Radio Merseyside non-league reporter, you know, and Paulie was, I mean, this World Cup winner sitting next to me, you know, and there was this queue for autographs, you know, in in, in the interval. And... You know, there was this massive long queue for Borley yeah. and nobody at my thing, you know, and I felt embarrassed to be even sitting there. And Borley made them all pass it on to you. Pass it on. Yeah. And, and, and you could see all these people getting annoyed that I was going to ruin it with my autograph. <laughs> but, but I think it was the measure of the man that he never left you out and he wanted to make sure that you were, you know, you were respected in that oh, way. Oh, no, no. He was, he was in, the, in that sort of way, he was a really good fellow. He had, he had no side to him. In fact, when he did. Do, uh, it's after dinner speak. You know, he had a high-pitched voice. That's right. He used to introduce, introduce himself as, I'm your guest squeaker for tonight. <laughs> yes. So, so he never th- took that, himself too seriously. No, that was him, yeah. 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 Um, how did you complement each other, you know, because, I mean, obviously we, we talk about you as the white pelly, you know. I mean, what 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 were the, to the sort of... Did you think the, the sort of uh, values of each player gave to that trio? Well, I mean, Borley could score goals. I mean, his goal-scoring record in, uh, I think it was something like 80 and 260 games, yeah. which is nearly a goal every three games from a midfield player. It was amazing. But we, we each sort of played uh, a point in front of Howard and I, and we did uh, more of the defensive work. And uh, Howard pr- probably was, in all the time I've watched football, he was probably... The best one-to-one tackler, 
I've ever seen. He, if he missed, he missed. But if he he caught for pound for pound, he was he's probably the best tackler that I've ever seen. Um, I remember him uh, catching Tommy Smith one time and uh, and knocking Tommy Smith over. Really? I mean, which was something like you know, because <laughs> Smithy in full flight was something to behold. But uh, I, I remember I was catching him and knocking him flying. So I thought, mm. good on you, lad. You yeah, know yeah. that. Yeah, you yeah. know, if you can do that, you'll you could do for me. It's yeah. always extra points anyway yeah. for that, isn't it? You yeah. Know? <laughs> I mean, and I mean, just to go. I mean, God rest his soul. It's not that long, but I always got on very well with Smithy off yeah. the field. But on the field, yeah. it, obviously, it was always a battle, like you know, but. Uh, for Howard to knock him over as he did on that yeah. day, I'll never forget him because that was uh, pound for pound one of the best tackles I've seen. Yeah, there's not not many do that, is no. there? No. But um, and when that broke up, did you sort of because uh, Borley went off, didn't he, to Arsenal? And I mean, you know, how, how did it feel to, when that sort of broke up? Uh, well, I mean, we were all on our own separate battles at the time. I was starting to feel something which later turned out to be my hip, which uh, I ended up. Uh, uh, packing up early with because of it, and um, Howard moved on to Birmingham as well. Sorry, and then uh, next minute Howard was at uh, Blackburn as yeah. player manager, and I was back at Everton as um, uh, reserve team coach at the time. And he rang me up, and he said, "Do you want to come and work at Blackburn?" You know, right. so <laughs> by the time I worked it out. Getting over to Blackburn every day, I'd be I'd be out of pocket. But so I said to him, I said, I, to, I said, oh, I just won't be able to do it. Like by the time I drive over there, petrol and all that. So anyway, I stayed in Everton, and um, next minute Howard turned up at Everton, yeah. and uh, yeah. the rest we, we we got on very well afterwards. Yeah, and, and then of course something else started again, then didn't it? And 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 you know people look at that time and they look at what changed and you know Howard as we all know is all well documented was going through a little bit of a tough time as the manager then and you know people were talking about you know should have Sir Philip have done something at the time and of course but then he brought you in from from the uh, the reserves and 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 people say that changed I know you're a modest man and you won't say but what did change what what did quite a few things I mean uh, he signed Andy Gray out of nothing uh Reedy had come and I'd watched Reedy play for about five or six times at Bolton because what I used to do was uh, if then there wasn't a lot of reserve game afternoon so I'd go and watch games in the North West and I had a good look at Reedy and I thought oh he'd be a big yeah. thing anyway he came and he, he didn't do particularly well when he first arrived and he was out the team and then all of a sudden he started again and that that was a help and there was Three or four different things all came together, and, and I would uh, move me up to play with the uh, to uh, work with the first team. If, if people say that was a, a help, well, it, it was a good decision by Howard to do it, you know. The, and it was just combination of three or four things, and then all of a sudden the team took off. And as I say, we had that game at Oxford where we we ended up where winning. Then the, 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 there was the cup run, and it was just uh, you get momentum, and obviously we did get real momentum. Just on a personal note, how did you um, deal with the transition? Because you went to Sheffield Wednesday, I think, near the end, didn't you, of your career, playing yeah, career? I did. How did you deal with the transition of being a player into a coach? Was that easy for you? Because it's been difficult for some people, hasn't it? You know. Um, to be honest with you, Al, it's one of those things. Like when you stop playing, then the next day you have to do something. Yeah. yeah. And I'd done my football badges, and I stopped playing, and. Uh, my uncle had a, a, a pub in uh, Northwich, which was a training pub for managers. Right. And I went there the next day after I stopped playing. And I was going to, I've worked there for about three months, thinking I'm, I was going to be a pub manager. 
Anyway, it was the it was the hardest work I've ever done in my life. And I, I been I came home for one week and we still lived in Sheffield, and Maureen was over there with the kids. So uh, she came and picked me up. And we went back, and on the Monday the phone went, and it was Billy Bingham. In fact, it was his secretary. She said, "I'm going to it called uh, Billy Bingham wants to work with you." So it was like called as a, uh, a job going with the U team here. Well, it was like pulling a drowning man out of the water. Like, <laughs> so yeah. within a couple of days, I'd started work at uh, at Everton. That was the pre-season of uh, 1976. Right. Yeah. So, so instead of maybe pulling a trophy, uh, you started lifting them instead, yeah. didn't you? <laughs> or pulling a pint as well. <laughs> yeah. oh, trophy bitter, yeah. I think it was yeah. called. Yeah. Trophy bitter. Yeah. But, uh, uh, but obviously, then this great team started to be created with you and when you and Howard and and you've seen people like Bracewell and and Reed and and Trevor Stephen and Gary Stephen and Neville Southall when was it I, I remember a, a victory against Manchester United at Goodison a 5-0 victory which that was the day as a fan I thought we've got winners here you know yeah. we've got a team that is going to win the league did you feel that before then or uh, do you remember that game? I rem- oh, I remember it yeah. well. Yeah, yeah. Um, I remember it even better. The following Tuesday, we went to play Man United at yeah. uh, Old Trafford in the, uh, the League Cup, League Cup mm. and we won two one, and it was a ding dong because Brian Robson on the Saturday, you could see when he came off the field at the end, yeah. there was steam coming out of his ears, yeah. and he made it his mission to kick every Everton player on the field on the Tuesday and he did it was like a one man battle he was unbelievable on the night and yet we still beat them 2-1 mm. and, and knew was that the Gidman um, uh, header in, uh, like a back header uh, own goal I can't end. remember to be honest yeah. but I, I remember uh, Brian Robson making his, his mission yeah. to kick every the moved yeah. in a blue shirt yeah. and he did and we beat them 2-1 and I thought well, that's some team that can do that yeah. win, win 5-0 at home and then go there and beat Brian Robson who was playing them on his own yeah. 2-1 on, the, on their own pitch yeah, yeah. on their own pitch yeah. but, but did you know that you had champions did, did you feel yeah, that well uh, the, the, the season uh, the start of the 84-85 season we got lost the first two games that's we got right. beat at yeah. home at Tottenham and then we went to West Brom on the Tuesday and got beat there. Yeah. And but you could see like we, they were we were different class. Like, and I just after the game I said, well, we haven't got forty two games to win the league now. We've got forty games to win the league. Mm. And sure enough, we did. We yeah. won it by a mile. Yeah. And, and you look at the characters. You know, people talk about managing players and managing characters. There were some characters in that team. Oh, the way, yeah. How difficult were it to to, to, to manage no, they those people? It went bad actually. Honestly, because uh, I mean. You, you mentioned quite a few there, and you did mention Kevin Ratcliffe as well, oh, who, who, was, who was the captain, who was probably a stronger cap, uh, character as really? any of them. Yeah, yeah. oh, yeah, he, 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 he was tough enough to Kevin Dan. Honestly, they, they, they more or less managed themselves. He comes across the gentleman of the side. Oh, yeah, but, yeah, but on the field, but he said, he on said the field, he was tough as nails, you know. Mm. Uh, how do you, uh, and you know, you need characters, don't you, in any winning side? You've oh, got to doubt, have yeah. people who would. You know, would would go in that dressing room, and and you, there was nowhere to hide, was there? In that dressing no, room? No, no, no. I mean, after time, 
you just had to open the door, let them in, and they sorted themselves out. You could go and have a cup of tea in there and let them get on, and they'd say, all right, come on, it's time to get out. Because they were, they were that tough and that ready to go, and they listened to one another as well, which is important as well. They didn't just shout at one another, they listened to what one another was saying, and off they went. What was your relationship like with Howard in that in that time? You know, what, that was good, How yeah. did it work? Was yeah. it, were you, the, were, you know, people talk about good cop, bad cop and all that. Was there no, any of that? No, no there wasn't as such. I mean, I... It, it, obviously, the final decision over anything was Howard's. Yeah. But I always had me say, I, you know, I felt something needed to say and I'd say it. And then say to him, well, at the end of it all, it's your decision. Yeah. But I'd, I'd, I'd do this, I'd do that. And very often he'd, he'd go, no. And then after a while he'd go, you're right. You know, and yeah. that's the way we yeah. did, we worked yeah. it, you know. But it was a good relationship. Oh, yeah, it was. We were good friends as well. Like, yeah. Yeah. Mm. And would players come to you and say, you know, listen, I'm not, you know, I'm not having what he's just said. No, or whatever. no, so none they of that, wouldn't no. do that. Cause they do. I wouldn't. Uh, I wouldn't put up with that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And how do you sort of, you know, you, you? It was a great tie, but one thing is winning something, and then maintaining it is almost a harder job, isn't exactly, it? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. How did you cope with that, the two of you? Well. It, to give out his due, he always had a good. He, as I say, his man management was top class, and he'd always so always make a little few adjustments in terms of buying a player or uh, letting a player go, or, or just uh, knowing when to make a, a couple of little changes. Yeah. And that's what he did right through the eighties. Yeah. And as a coach, was there a player that you thought wouldn't make it but did and surprised you? You know, um, in that in that sort of time. No, well, I. I Obviously, a lot of them had come through the, when I had them in the U team and reserves. Yeah. So I knew them all pretty well, you know, and quite a few of them got through to the first team. So I think that was one of his ways of thinking when he did move me up the first team. That I knew them all well and knew their foibles and knew yeah. the, the character and yeah. uh, how they'd react to things. And um, obviously, yeah, we got on well and, and looked after the same yeah. that one. But there's, so there's no one that shocked you as a player. You expect what, what you got, what you saw was what you got. No, not really, no, because as I said, they, 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 when I went back in 76 through to 83 when I moved up, the, the amount of talent at the club was mm. amazing. Yeah. You know, the likes of uh, Stephen McMahon who moved on and didn't yeah. get, get quite yeah. make it through to that team, you know, went on to Liverpool, yeah. Aston Villa, Liverpool and, and uh, the likes of Joe McBride. They, there was quite a few, extraordinary amount of uh, mm. young players who were uh, top, ta- uh, top talented players who were... Um, Who've been recruited by the club, and they, they were an amazing number of really yeah. good players. And then that that second uh, title winning side, very different, wasn't it, from the first one? You know, people like Paul Power coming in, and I think everybody at the time raised their eyebrows and thought yeah. Paul Power. But people like Alan Harper, people like Kevin Richardson, there were so many um, sort of, you know, not superstars, but again showed the sort of real, quality they, of a team. Yeah, they, they did real good jobs. So, I mean, the, in fact, they, to go back to Bayern Munich away. Uh, Alan Harper and Kevin Richardson both played in that side, and one played left side of midfield, one played right side of midfield, and we drew them in the other there. And those two, their contribution was top class. Those that day, you mm-hmm. know, that or that night, mm-hmm. and um, obviously they, they, we went on to beat them um, at Goodison. But the, the, the fact that we we drew nil nil away 
was just as important as the game of the, at Goodison. Yeah. What, what were the games that stick out? I mean, you mentioned Bayern Munich. Obviously, that sticks out with every Evertonian, doesn't it? But yeah. what were the games that sort of stick out for you in that period, that successful period? Was there any that you think, you know, uh, you still remember today? Yeah. Uh, I'm trying to... Th- there was one game that I'm trying to think of. Might have been Coventry away or something like that. Mm. But we didn't play particularly well. But we won 1-0. And you think... I'd, I'd done that when I was a player. I, I, uh, yeah. Certain games stuck out where we won away from home and we haven't played particularly well. And you yeah. think, if you can do that when you're not playing well, yeah. just imagine when you are playing well. And there was one one game, I'm not quite certain, that I just got in the back of my mind, Coventry, that we mm. won 1-0 away from home and we didn't play particularly well. Um, that was, you think... And coaches, yeah, coaches and footballers can see that differently than a fan, can't they? You know, because they're living it and you know, they're in yeah. there. And it, and it does mean something more to you, doesn't it, I think? Yeah, yeah. Oh, you know, as I, said, as I said, like the fact that you didn't play well and you came through it, mm. you've, uh, you've experienced it, you think, we, we play well, we're going to bear the teams, yeah, you know, yeah, and that's what yeah, we did. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, the, the bombshell when Howard left, uh, you know, was that, did you know that was on the cards? Did you sort of, did you think this was going to happen? Well, it, it, it happened the season before mm. because he was going out to do, uh, Barcelona. Yeah, he'd, he'd actually said to me, "I'm Barcelona been on, and do you want to go?" And I, I had quite a family. Barcelona had been on. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, so <laughs> off the, yeah, no, nothing, nothing big. Yeah, yeah. And uh, Terry Venables was the manager then, mm. and they'd been on to Howard and asked him, yeah, "Would he go?" And he was going to go at the end of the season. And he said to me, "Do you want to go?" And family were quite young at the time, and I thought. I'll go and ask them to ask them. Yeah. They, well, we're not leaving home, Dad. We're not, yeah. we're not that bit school and doing this and doing that. So I went in the next day and said, no, I'm not going. So I had a word with uh, Sir Philip and Carter and he said, uh, <coughs> well, at the end of the season, when Howard goes, you take over as manager. Right. Anyway, towards the end, Terry Venables uh, changed his mind and stayed at Barcelona. And so Howard changed his mind and he said, uh, what do you think? I said, I've got no problems whatsoever with that. I said, uh, I'm more than happy to work with you, yeah. you know. So that that was it. And, uh, we had another season, yeah. yeah. And when it did happen, I mean, um, I've got, I guess that the same system stayed in place. Didn't yeah, it? And basically, was it. yeah. It was, uh, it, it was uh, Atletico Madrid, not Atletico Madrid. Uh, he, he just said... Bilbao. Bilbao, mm-hmm. yep. Yeah. Uh, Bilbao have come out and... Same again, do you want to go? No. <laughs> I'd love to, but yeah. the, the family that aren't going to go. So, uh, How hard the choice is that for you, Carl? You know, as a, as, a, as a coach, as someone, you know, to to see an opportunity. I mean, especially Barcelona, you know. Yeah. But, I, I mean, it, fair play to you for, you know, for family first, you know. Oh, without doubt, yeah. They were in, uh, what were the girls? They were about four, 14, 15, 16. Really? So you think, if they, if they don't want to go, and I, I, I'm not going to go... And, for nine months to leave them, you know. So mm-hmm. I just said, uh, said oh, no, it was just a family decision yeah, and fantastic. I didn't want to do it, yeah. Mm-hmm. And then when he did go, I mean, uh, I remember coming down, we've talked about before, you know, you, the first ever interview I did for radio was with you and I'll never forget, you know, going up to the office in Belfield, I was terrified, I was shaking, <laughs> I couldn't hold the microphone properly, yeah. you know, because I was, yeah. you know, I was interviewing the manager of Everton, you know, and I'll never forget asking you a daft question, which is, I often did, um, you know, and still do, um, I said to you about, you know, what can you achieve, you know, you've won the league, you know, and you said, well, I think you said something like, "We just have to stay on a plateau, you know, <laughs> yeah. what, what do you want me to say here, you know, yeah. and uh, how difficult was it that's easy. It was you know. it was it was very difficult. I mean, because uh, I mean, 
I'd never set out in life to be a manager. Mm. I'd set out to be a, a footballer because that was like every kid's dream. Or you, you want to be a footballer and I achieved all that. And then the next best thing, I'd always been like a student of football, even when I was playing. I mean, uh, world soccer was uh, all these uh, magazines. I used to buy them all and study football. And uh, so being a coach and uh, taking me coaching badges when I was still playing was still part of me. So when I finished playing, I went into coaching and I, I took to that after playing. Obviously, it wasn't as important as playing. But then uh, management was a different thing. I, I wasn't cut out in, in, in lots of respect to do it, you know, because personality-wise and everything else. And uh, although I had a temper, I, I wasn't um, ruthless. And I think to be a yeah. top-class man, you've got to be ruthless. Of course, yeah, and I, uh, mm. that wasn't me. So I, I didn't take to it particularly well, I must be honest. Mm. Managing is, a, you know, and it's a good point, this, and it, it's lovely to hear you being so honest about that. But, you know, m- managers, there's so many number twos who don't make... The manager's position because there's a very specific skill, isn't there? Oh yeah, without doubt. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it's so much more comes into it. Obviously, you're dealing with the press, you're dealing with players mm. who are left out the side, uh, angry players, and things like that. And yeah. although, as I said before, I had, uh, I, I could look after myself in certain respects, but I wasn't ruthless and uh, yeah. did things with you know you think ahead and you've got to do this, you have got to do that. So it, it wasn't me. And as a coach, you didn't have that, did you? you no, don't have those. No, you know, you, my you... thing as a coach was setting training sessions out and mm. uh, looking after players and making sure we were fit and right and everything else. Yeah. And that once I moved over to the management side, there was so much more to it, which wasn't me. Yeah, he was a genius as well, wasn't he, Howard? He had something about. Well, it, he, 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 as I say, his, his main thing was his man management, yeah. and he had other aspects to his uh, his uh, ideas that. Uh, I didn't have. I had different uh, life skills to him, and he had different to me. And he, he, he was, he was probably, uh, he was top class manager. No two ways about it. And when he came back, uh, and and he sort of rung you up and said, you know, would you, would you, would you come and join me again? I mean, uh, no hesitation. Uh, there was at the time, but uh, well, thinking back, I should, I should have said no, mm. uh, because. I'd changed and he changed, so which it just didn't gel again the second time round. Mm. No two ways about it. But, but that, the club that, was a bit different then yeah, as well, wasn't I mean, it? I think. But that's uh, that's something you, you learn by hindsight, isn't it? Yeah. Probably if I'd had a bit of hindsight about me at the time, I should I should have said no, but I didn't. And that's that. Mm. And then did, did could you believe he'd gone back for the third time as well? Because you were still at the club again, weren't you? I'd, I'd gone back with the, uh, with the to youth. look after the academy yeah. again yeah. and. Uh, the coaching in the academy, and the next bit who walks in? But because I've been walking with, <laughs> working with, uh, I'd like to spell working with uh, Adrian Heath of Burnley. Yes, of course. And yeah. uh, he said, I've had a phone call off uh, Howard. He may be going back to Everton. I said, I don't believe that a third time. Anyway, in the meantime, I got a, a phone call off uh, Mr. Johnson, who was the chairman, course, and he yeah. said, uh, Would you like to come back and look after the youth team, uh, the, the academy? He said, Because I want to win the youth cup. He said it's been always been an ambition of mine. Anyway, so I went back and we won it that year. Yeah, <laughs> so, I remember. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's some great youngsters, didn't oh, you? Oh yeah, yeah, tremendous. Yeah, yeah. really good I, footballers. And then it sort of went on after that. I mean, you know, um, where people like Wayne Rooney were coming through. I remember how protective you were about Wayne. You know, I remember they played them. We played at West Ham away in a youth cup game. And I remember me trying to, I was working for Sky then, I was remember trying to come down and I thought, Colin, help me out here, you know, I, I'll be sorted here. And you said to me, not today, lad, you know. And I, and, I, and I think that sort of shows the professionalism that you've always adapted to your job, you know. And 
uh, uh, how was it difficult to manage players like that, Carl? You know, no, he wasn't difficult at all. He was a, he was a uh, to be honest with you, he was an absolute genius. And uh, I thought at the time that he'd go on to be in the top four or five players of all time, um, along with uh, Maradona and Cruyff and and them. But I don't think he he quite made that. He just dropped a little bit short of that. But at the time, I thought, we've got another Maradona on our hands here. You know, he's got to yeah. be as good as him. But not quite, but still brilliant. He was. I mean, leading all time goal scorer for England, leading all time goal scorer for Man United. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you, you, you can't knock those things. Stats, you know, yeah. No. Yeah, but no, he wasn't. Didn't quite get up to the, the plateau I thought he would do. And you get the same sort of buzz out of seeing the likes of Hibbo and the likes of Ozzy and people well, like then, that coming well, through and having a good them, career. The thing about them that you said to me before that uh, anyone surprise you? Hmm. Well, those two surprised me. I must yes. be honest. I thought they were they were both great kids. They both worked their socks off, and I thought they'd make good livings out of the game. But hmm. I never thought they'd go on to play. As many games for oh. Everton as they did. I remember you, me and you had a conversation. You won't remember this at a reserve game, and I talked about Hibbo, and I loved the way he tackled. Yeah. You know, he would go in, and he didn't care about his no. own safety, did he? No. <laughs> in a tackle, and I remember you saying, "I think he'll have a good career, but he might." There's those very words what you just said, uh, and and he did go on to sort of prove you wrong, I guess. Oh in yes, a sense. well, like yeah, yeah you, could say, you asked me before that the, the players proved me wrong, and those two did. Mm. Yeah, without doubt. Mm. So, um, uh, pleasantly so as well yeah, yeah. yeah of course I'm yeah. glad they did yeah, yeah. Uh, and come full circle um, I watched you the other week uh, down at the, the statue you know getting the, the you know getting the unveiling of the statue and I thought to myself how special must it be to that somebody makes the statue of you I mean how did that feel Carl you know it was overwhelming to be honest with you Al. I, did, yeah. I didn't stay on for the game normally because uh, all season or the last four or five seasons I'll be taking my grandson to the game and I was uh, just oh, so overcome. Mm. I didn't stay to watch the game. And, really? Uh, and Maury was with me, and I just said, oh, let's get a cab home. And, uh, yeah. I, I couldn't wait on, uh, any longer, you know. Yeah. But, um, no, it was a, 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 an amazing day, because um, I go back to, uh, oh, 1945, 46. Mm. Uh, my dad was just home from the war, and... Uh, I'm, everyone sort of mixed houses with them. Yeah. And my dad, my mum and my brother and I moved in with uh, my auntie who lived at the Lisa Street, which is at the back of Gladys Street. I know what you mean. Yeah. 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 And we used to live park there. there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, we used to, we lived there for a couple of years with them. And then we got a, a prefab in um, Old Swan, really? which was better than the town because you, you had a fridge and yeah. stuff in it and things like that. <laughs> but that was, um, I mean, it was ideal for me dad because he, he only had to walk around the court and go into. Uh, Gladys Street, but uh, it, it just—I uh, was just thinking, you know, uh, how do you go from there to having mm. a statue outside? Yeah, yeah. You know, which is just there absolutely you are in amazing. Bronze, you know, yeah, forever, forever more. You know, yeah. mm. because um, I went to see it about a couple of years ago. Um, the fel- the the architect, um, <clears throat> and it, it hadn't been bronzed or anything like that then. And I thought mm. I wasn't over impressed with it. Yeah. But when the the uh, curtain came down and looked at it, and you yeah. think. And they'd sort of done it in, at yeah. different angles yes. as well, which we yeah. thought was very impressive. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, it was quite amazing, actually. As I say, quite overpowered. Did you ever go there, you know, on a little went, sneaky look I on your went own? last and... Sunday. Did you? Yes. Because <laughs> on the day, as I say, if there were thousands of people around yeah. Yeah. and I couldn't have a proper look. And uh, Maureen and uh, 
my daughters and grandkids were running in the race for life oh, right. at, the, at the Anfield last Sunday. And I thought, I'll just go down now and just have a quick, quiet look at it, which I did. I mm. st- sort of stood back because I hadn't, I'd been too close to it before and it was a, a quite an impressive how, uh, how it was done. It must be a, well, I know when I ever drive past it, Carl, I look at it and I remember a, a great man and, and, and someone who I loved working with at Everton and was always was a great fella to me. So I, I know that's not stopped today with this right. interview. So thanks right. very much, Carl. I really appreciate Pleasure. it. The Royal Blue Podcast from the Liverpool Echo. Well, I hope you enjoyed all that. It's, as always, a pleasure to present the podcast to you. And don't forget, contact me on Twitter if you want to comment on anything you've heard. Speak soon and up the toffees. You've been listening to the Royal Blue Podcast from the Liverpool Echo.